According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 11, Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. Continuing our study in episode 12 of the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, the judgment against lawyers and Pharisees. Judgment against lawyers and Pharisees. And we are down now to the final two points of study, point seven and eight. So I expect we ought to be able to tie this together and bring uh, bring this to a close today and uh, set the table for chapter 12 next week. I say that and we'll spend another month on uh, on point seven and eight. But I think we can get through point seven and eight here this morning. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit in fellowship, humble before the authority of God's Word, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your Word, the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we ask for your hand of blessing upon us. We thank you for this freedom uh, freedom that we do not take for granted, freedom we know can be gone tomorrow. So we praise your name, we glorify you, we thank you for this opportunity we have to redeem, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. In dealing with these Pharisees and the approach that they had, he had to adjust their thinking in a lot of different ways, and the material we covered last week addressed some of those issues. I don't want to go back and review all six points of what we were dealing with. But Jesus prescribes the antidote to Phariseeism, uh, the internal attitude, what we see here in verse 41. Give that which is within as charity, then all things are clean for you. In other words, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If your heart is giving and charitable, then when you give that which is within, you are indeed uh, in that gracious mindset. That's exactly what the Pharisees need. They were so wrapped up in the externals, external observance, when internally they were as filthy as you can imagine. Point five, Jesus pronounced three woes upon the Pharisees who will not take his prescription. And the three woes that come in here, starting in verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, you pay tithe of mint and rue, and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. These are like um, uh, hyper-fastidious believers that, that uh, focus on minor, tiny little issues and overlook the main point for why we're doing it. Uh, in fact, uh, I can uh, think of instances in, even in doctrinal circles where you've got believers that never miss a class. They're there every time the door is open. They, they're filling notebooks with point after point after point and these long drawn out outlines and everything else imaginable. And yet they're missing the big point of why it is that we're studying to show ourselves approved. They're accumulating knowledge which puffs up, but they're not uh, embracing the love which edifies. And, uh, and that's what we have here. They're majoring in the minors and they're neglecting the major elements of worship. That's the first woe. The second woe is where they love the human approbation and they neglect to love the Lord their God. And the third woe is the fact that they uh, uh, are the embodiment of Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25, which says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. That they... Uh, 
as it says here, you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. They're walking on their own grave. They're walking on that which is going to kill them, and they don't understand. They think they're pursuing wonderful religion. They're pleasing to God. They don't even understand that uh, the opposite is the truth of the matter. The lawyers under point six, we looked at the lawyers last week. They also had three woes. They were upset by his hubris. Part of the vocabulary here when they said you insult us too is a Greek verb. I believe it's hubridzo, but it's it's the Greek word from which our English word hubris derives. And uh, they were very insulted. And that's uh, something we've discussed in the past in terms of stumbling blocks. We don't want to be the unnecessary stumbling block. And yet we understand it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. So under the principles of stumbling blocks, we make certain that we aren't deliberately uh, forming them and we aren't unnecessarily causing a brother to stumble. But if the truth itself causes stumbling, in particular an unbeliever to stumble, that's not our concern. That's not our fault. And in fact, much of that needs to happen. The gospel should be offensive for those that are rejecting the gospel, for those that need to have a change of thinking or a change of attitude, what we call repentance, uh, towards the gospel. It should be offensive until that repentance takes place. So they were struck by Jesus' hubris, so Jesus pronounced three more woes upon them, and that's uh, the content here in verses 46 through 52. They uh, free themselves from their uh, religious burdens that they impose upon others. That's a, a big danger sign if you're in a ministry where the pastor's got one set of rules for the people and another set of rules for himself. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> All right. And uh, things like that. Secondly, they claim one heritage, but in reality, they manifest a different heritage um, in different things. This, too, by the way, we can kind of look at it in another facet. Um, I was thinking about this the other day after... You know, we taught this last week, but then in, I guess, Thursday or Friday or whereabouts, um, I encountered a uh, Roman Catholic who was very uh, proud of their Catholicism, proud of their heritage. And that's what it was coming down to was this long tradition that, of course, goes all the way back to Peter. You know, it goes back to the first pope, goes back and and so forth. And us, you know, the, the Protestants have this. Uh, you know, 500 year heritage going back to Martin Luther or Calvin or something like that. And uh, anyway, so the, the idea was, was that the longer tradition, the more glorious tradition is something to be respected and admired and, and all of that. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And I said, but do you know some of the other traditions and some of the other heritage that goes with that? You know, if you really want to claim that heritage, it's like this passage here. You're building the temple to these prophets, but why is it these prophets are dead? Who killed them? What was what were the circumstances of their death? And who have put more Christians to death uh, over the years? Uh, Romans or Protestants when it comes down to it and uh, and different things like that. So the heritage is the heritage. And that includes the Inquisition. That includes the Crusades. That includes all these other things. And the sad thing is, too, is in my dialogue with Muslims, Muslims, of course, are very angry regarding the, the Crusades and so forth. And they say, well, you know, it's the Christians that did that. And I try to stop saying, no, no, it was the Romans that did that. Let's not, let's not mix up Christianity with, with other activities. So heritage, there's a whole doctrine with respect to heritage. And I hope 
to uh, be able to be able to develop a, a biblical approach to heritage. What is it when when you can identify that faithful man taught faithful men taught faithful men? We understand that the legitimate appreciation for heritage is within the context of those that were faithful teachers of the Word of God, and that's what the Bible promotes. So. Anyway, I, I hope in some point in time to have a developed doctoral study on heritage to go with our new project on the website where we have our doctrinal heritage uh, audio archive that's up and running even now. The third woe, they claim a special knowledge, but in reality they hinder true knowledge. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. And uh, you yourselves do not enter, and you hinder those who were entering. And this is... Similar to any cult, they claim to have special knowledge, special insight, and the reality is it's just the opposite, and they hinder true knowledge when it comes right down to it. We're talking about Mormonism this morning and in previous times. It's exactly what that is. They claim all this hidden knowledge and special knowledge and the latest revelation from God and so forth, and in reality they're keeping people away from the true knowledge of the one true God. All right, now for point seven and eight, the material we want to cover today, we start with this Generation. So point seven, this generation. And we see them introduced here in verse 49. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And we want to put in context what is this generation. Because the culminated wrath of God for every martyr ever murdered, all the way from Abel on, is going to be vested into a single generation. Highlighted here as this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. And, of course, Abel was early in the book of Genesis, the first martyr. Cain murdered Abel. And then uh, Zechariah there at the end of Chronicles. You've got a really a comprehensive look. It's like saying from Genesis to Malachi is what it's saying. Or from Genesis to Chronicles is what it's saying. From the beginning to the end of the Old Testament. Every martyr the Old Testament ever records. And the wrath of God for that is going to be vested upon this generation. So point seven, what is this generation? This generation is the generation of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. It is the generation of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. It is those Jews, the nation of Israel, in the first century when Jesus Christ was walking this earth. We'll back up and get some context for this and give you some subpoints here in a moment. But it's important that we identify this generation in the context because of another passage, also in Luke, and there's two parallels in Matthew, where this generation is referencing the tribulational generation. And we want to be clear because uh, the context will make it certain for us in both cases. All right. So now look who the adversaries are here in Luke 11. We've got the triple woes to the Pharisees, the triple woes to the lawyers. And they are the agents of adversity uh, that are being rebuked. They are the agents of adversity in this chapter. Nothing here is prophetic. Everything here is immediate. Jesus Christ is addressing the agents of adversity, or of the adversarial agents is what I'm trying to say, the, the brood of vipers of his day. 
the ones that he was literally face to face with in back in the 30s, the, 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 not the 1930s, the 30s, right? The 30s A.D. when he was when he was ministering. Now, let's make that clear because there's all the political talk today about going back to the 30s in terms of seeing the depression, the Great Depression returning to the United States of America. All right. No, we're talking about the 30s A.D., the first advent incarnation ministry of Jesus Christ. So. Again, look at this context. You notice in verse 42, it's woe to you Pharisees. Those are the immediate, literal, contemporary uh, adversaries that are afflicting Israel in the presence of Jesus Christ. And then uh, same thing with the lawyers. Woe to you lawyers in verse 46. And so you have... um, the, uh, the Pharisees in 42 through 44, you've got the lawyers in 45 and following. You'll notice that it, they reference the uh, killing of the prophets in verse 47. Verse 48, so you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers. And um, the you there, who are the you there in verse 48? Who's the you? The people he's talking to, right? That's who the you guys are, yeah. So when it says, for this reason... Also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them uh, they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. Okay, This is the context. He's talking about these very adversaries, the ones that have become the heirs, the ones that have become the witnesses, that have approved everything their fathers have done. And since they stamped their approval on it, they're going to reap the consequences. All right, so that's this generation. So point A then, when he says the wisdom of God says, the wisdom of God said, rather, in verse 49, Jesus is not quoting any known scripture. Important that you identify that. You can't find a quotation. Much, uh, many times when he quotes, he introduces with the phrase, it is written. Right? Gagraptai. It is written. In all of his temptations against the devil, it is written. It is written. It is written. Here he does not say it is written. He says the wisdom of God said. That's a significant change. And I think it's, uh, it uh, is quite telling. He's not quoting any known scripture. This appears to be, and I say appears to be because it's my conclusion based on the face uh, value, uh, the plain language of the text, a plain reading of the text. This appears to be a spoken declaration of God the Son's in eternity past. Remember, who is wisdom as, according to Proverbs 8? God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. And uh, the, uh, of course, he's called the Logos in John 1. He's called wisdom in Proverbs 8. He's got different terms. But he is the wisdom of God. So for this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. Now, there's more work to be done on this than we're going to do today, um, and it's, it, is, it needs to be evaluated whether the reference to the wisdom of God here is truly the second member of Trinity, or whether we uh, ought to think of it as the first member of Trinity, if rather this is God the Father who's doing the sending, or whether it's God the Son who's doing the sending. I, I'm convinced it's the Son, and there's reasons for it, but we'll, uh, we'll let that go here for our, our purposes today. It doesn't really affect 
the uh, impact of this generation applying to his his literal adversaries in real time, the, his contemporary adversaries in his uh, lifetime. So he's not quoting any known scripture. It appears to be a spoken declaration of God the Son's in eternity past, quoted by whom? Himself. God the Son in the temporal present. God the Son in the temporal present. All right. Interesting uh, testimony here with an utterance that he declared and, uh, and yet one that he is citing here. Point B. Sending prophets and apostles. Notice that order. Prophets and apostles. I will send to them prophets and apostles, not apostles and prophets. By the time it gets to the church, the order is apostles and prophets because the apostles are the ones in authority. But sending prophets and apostles references primarily Israel, the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. In other words, John the Baptist, Jesus himself is a prophet. So sending prophets, i.e. John and Jesus, and apostles, the twelve, References primarily the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation. And that's the, the literal fulfillment here as it pertains to the face-to-face adversaries, contemporary adversaries in the, in the first century. So the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. Uh, obviously, John's already lost his head by the time this gets uttered. Uh, the remainder of them will also be killed or persecuted. And this is, uh, this is the immediate fulfillment of this is in first century by these very adversaries, the ones that, uh, that are the heritage of those that went on before. But it goes also beyond this age of incarnation and incorporates the first generation of the church. Because remember, the twelve go on to become the founders of the church. And so once again, we find that you can find a secondary application as it pertains to persecution in the early church. And who were the first persecutors of the early church? They were the Jews. That's right. In fact, uh, the, the interesting thing is, as far as the Gentiles were concerned, as far as the Romans were concerned, uh, the way uh, or Christianity was simply a, a, a sect of the Jews. They, they didn't know any different. They, they were convinced that, uh, that these were just simply followers of a Galilean rabbi and, and they were basically uh, a sect of the Jews like the Pharisees or the Sadducees or some, something like that. And uh, they didn't view it as something separate. Uh, and they didn't persecute it. Judaism was allowed under Roman law. Judaism was an accepted uh, racial religion that Rome tolerated and permitted. And so they didn't persecute Christianity early on like the Jews persecuted Christianity early on. So sending prophets and apostles references primarily the age of the incarnation. That is the last age of the dispensation of Israel there before Pentecost. But it also incorporates the first generation of the dispensation of the church, age of the apostles. Now, that's a secondary application. It's not totally spelled out here. And why can't it be? The church is still a mystery. That's right. Until the church is unveiled and revealed in Acts chapter 2, the, uh, the impact of that cannot possibly be known. Now, there's a third consideration here we want to understand. Point C, an important examination of context. 
That's why I took the time to show you the Pharisees in 42 through 44, the, the uh, scribes in 45 through 48, and how it was linked to the, to the martyrdom of those prophets. An important examination of context differentiates applications of this generation. All right, because you have other applications of this generation, namely in Luke, let me change to yellow, in Luke 21 and in Matthew 24. And that's uh, something to consider as opposed to what we're looking at here in Luke 11, which has its parallel in Matthew 23. All right. So in other words, if you line up your, uh, your Luke's, with your Luke's and your Matthews with your Matthews, you'll see that there's some differences involved. There. How about that? So, here's what we don't want to fall into the trap. We don't want to fall into a trap that says, well, if the phrase is this generation, then it has to mean the literal uh adversaries, the literal opponents, the literal uh, generation uh, on the scene in that first century when it was first spoken. Okay, And if you fall for that trap that it has to be uh, the first century people that heard him speak those words, then you're going to fall for a fallacy that, that bedevils the preterists uh, among us, those that believe that second advent has already happened, those that believe that tribulation has already happened, those that believe that revelation is done in terms of the book of Revelation, is done, all right? Uh, we, we, of course, view Revelation uh, 6 through 19, tribulation is something yet future. We, we view uh, Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 with the millennium and the new heavens and the new earth as something future, okay? Preterists tell you, oh, no, no, that's over and done with. That's over and done with. So your amillennialists, your preterists, your other uh, historicists and other sad folks. I mean, and they're on the radio all the time. You probably have their books in your library. You don't even know it. All right. So let's uh, focus on this. Since we're in Luke, let's stick with Luke and go over to Luke 21. And then uh, if we have time, we'll look at the Matthew passages. The, the Matthew passages are better known and they're the ones that people typically go to. But in Luke 21... Verse 32, we have a phrase, this generation. In verse 32, you have the phrase, this generation, which says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Okay, so the question then falls into place. And if you just assume whether this generation has to be uh, the contemporary uh, generation with the person who's speaking, well, then, okay, it's in uh, 30 A.D. this is being spoken, or 32 A.D. this is being spoken, or uh, actually the spring of 33 A.D. this is being spoken. So, uh, obviously, then, if this generation has to refer to people on the planet when he's saying these words in 33 A.D., then you will fall for that trap and say that 70 A.D. has to be the, the end. That has to be the, the reality of it. But it's not. Look, uh, this generation is not code you want to understand that it's simply language being uh, examined, and in its context, you should be able to tell which generation is being spoken of. So back up. Look at, the, uh, look at what's being asked in this chapter. So, uh, all the way back up to the beginning of the chapter, and they're looking around the temple area, they're looking around the treasury and the different things. 
uh, they were so proud of their temple. Verse 5, while some were talking about the temple that Herod the Edomite built for them. While some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And so he's not impressed. <laughs> right? He's not impressed. They're looking at all this temple. Isn't it beautiful and it's great and all the money that's poured into it? Clearly, if you've got a gorgeous church building, that's evidence that God's blessing you, right? And he looks at this and he says, you know what? I'm not impressed. This thing's going to fall down. This thing's going to be torn down. So then... They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. So recognize, first of all, that he's answering questions about the end times and he's giving them instruction that's going to span a significant period of time where he's describing events are going to take place as previews. He's going to describe things are going to take place as beginnings of birth pangs. But even then, that's not the end. And it's there's even a significant period of time in between because the end is not immediately, we're told in verse nine. So he continued by saying, and in reality, there's different, they're asking different questions. It's not the same question they're asking. And uh, when we get over to the Matthew parallel, we'll start to see that the, uh, the destruction of the temple is one question. The return of Christ is another question. All right. And it's not one and the same event. You have to kind of confuse the questions to kind of lump everything together to make everything one and the same event. So, um, let's just scan through from 10 and following to notice uh, that there's a lot that goes on. Uh, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes. You know, there was an earthquake in the news the other day. Does that mean we're in the end times? <laughs> no, because, well, anyway, people get buggy over current events. Uh, but great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines, terrors, great signs from heaven. Uh, some of these things are just simply the aspect of a fallen world. And we've always had earthquakes. We've always had plagues. We've always had famines. But you start to see them increasing and you start to see them all coinciding with each other. Plus, of course, the great signs from heaven. Maybe on a, on a uh, marathon Sunday, there's some kind of meteor that flies over Texas and it gets all buggy. Ooh, we're in the end times, right? I think I'll write a book, make some money. All right. <laughs> no. Isn't that worldly? Cosmos wisdom. I bet you can make some money with something like that. But now notice, because there are time contexts here. So verse 12 sets a time context because it says before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So we have a sequence being described here. And there's persecution and imprisonment and synagogue accountability that comes before the uh, national war, international war, world war, uh, earthquakes, famines terrors, great signs, and so forth. So just understand there's a sequence there. 
and it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony and different things. Now, down to, interestingly enough, you will be hated by all because of my name. Hated by all because of my name. Hatred for the name of Jesus Christ. That's what motivated persecution in the first century. It's it's what's going to motivate Jewish persecution in the tribulation. Alright, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, in 70 AD, her, uh, her, uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, but was that the fulfillment of this? Let's take a look. Because Jerusalem's been surrounded by armies lots of times since, uh, not only 70 AD, but since 70 AD. Alright. Um, so, you gotta flee. Uh, these are days of vengeance. Things are going to be fulfilled. Uh, if you're pregnant, in verse 23, you're nursing babies. That's bad news because uh, that slows you down. You can't run as fast. And uh, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Notice now. This is a description of Jerusalem surrounded, Jerusalem crushed, Jerusalem trampled. And the only answer here is to flee. Okay? This is not Second Advent because in Second Advent, Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. But what happens? Christ comes. Yeah, Christ comes. And he crushes those enemies. And the, and, and the time of the Gentiles is over and everlasting righteousness is exalted and his kingdom is established. So this is, uh, this is uh, a description of Jerusalem brought to an end. Now I want you to notice what else happens until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, on to verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars on the earth, dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves. And you would think that conquering of uh, Jerusalem would make them happy. Uh, Gentile dominion would make them happy. And yet, are the Gentiles happy? No. Verse 25, there's dismay among the nations. And uh, let's see, verse 27. Well, let's see. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is going to be significant. This is not just going to be a a random meteor over Texas. This is going to be a significant astronomical event. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay, has that happened yet? No. If you say, if you try to prove that it's already happened, then you have to allegorize everything and you have to um, confuse issues. Uh, But when these things begin to take place... Straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. Okay, so this is something obviously that's after the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 24, the ongoing dominion of Gentiles in verses 25 and following, and then another time of tribulation that's coming in still the future. So then he tells them the parable of the fig tree here. And... Verse 31, so also when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Now, when, when he starts talking about you, when you see these things in verse 31, let me ask, who's, he, who's the you there? When he says when you see these things in verse 31, is it the, the, the literal human beings he's talking to there? Exactly. The generation that is alive at the time that these things start to take place. Because this is a passage that's taken us through a sequence of things yet in the future. 
there, because there's a generation of those that are going to be synagogue bound and beaten. There's going to be a generation that's going to witness the wars and the famines and the things there. And so we see a sequence of things. And so by this time, when he's talking about when you see this, the you there is not the literal people he's talking to, but people down the road that will see this. You see, it's not difficult. It's just language. You've got to be careful with the language and not be trapped into a formula. Recognize the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Remember, that's when finally the stone made without hands is going to come down out of heaven. It's going to crush the, the Gentile statue, bring the Gentile dominion to an end, and, and so forth. That's finally going to draw near. So, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. What is the this generation there? At that time. Yeah, the ones who see this thing. The ones who see and recognize that uh, the kingdom of God is near. Excellent. All right. So, the, um, and it goes on. Uh, heaven and earth will pass away, my earth, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Uh, you know, this the tribulational generation is going to be like the days of Noah. And this is the kind of partying that's going to be going on. Um, that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. This day is going to be a global day of wrath and judgment. Okay, global day of wrath and judgment, a worldwide application of divine wrath upon Gentile nations and upon Israel it's, uh, itself. Um, quite a bit different from the historical events of 70 A.D. when uh, Titus destroyed Jerusalem and brought, uh, brought that uh, temple to an end. Now over in Matthew, we've got some time. Over in Matthew, it's something similar. Matthew 23 compared to Matthew 24. So let's take a look at it. Simply because these are the passages uh, I think folks turn to more than they turn to the Luke passage. Again, in Matthew 23, it's woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a whole bunch of woes. They, uh, they're all self-righteous, saying, you know, if we'd have been living in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partners with them in the shedding of blood. And he says, you testify against yourselves. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. You are their heritage. You are their legacy. And so fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. See, they are the heritage, the legacy of those that went before, those that killed. And, and the ones that went before killed every prophet God ever sent. What are they going to do? They're going to crucify the Christ. They're going to kill the greatest prophet of all time. They're going to kill the Christ. And so the reason why God's hand of disciplinary wrath has been withheld, he did not invest wrath upon Israel when they sawed uh, Isaiah in half. They did not, uh, he did not invest national discipline on the Jewish people for uh, the other martyrdoms of the other prophets. He withheld that wrath until this generation. So it all would be visited upon the generation that crucifies the Christ. <coughs> you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? There again, context, the you are the literal people he's talking to. That audience, right then, right there. 
Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that uh, upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Anyway, this is parallel to our study, what we're dealing with in Luke 11. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, over uh, one chapter later to Matthew 24. Again, identify there is a totally different context. He is no longer talking about this generation. He's no longer talking about his literal audience. He's been brought into a future mode. Again, they're all dazzled by the temple buildings. The first part of chapter 24. And he says, look, not one stone will be left that will not be torn down. And uh, so then they come to him privately saying, tell us, in verse 3, what will the, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Entirely different questions. There's three questions there. What will these things, uh, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Think about how many saviors stand up and, and say, I'm your savior. And how they're praised and worshipped and celebrated. Even with that language, the Messiah language, like our current president. All right. There are again wars and rumors of wars, you'll notice, but that is not yet the end. Earthquakes and famines, these are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. These are the very early, easy contractions, the ones that let you know that uh, you're headed towards childbirth, but you're certainly not there yet. All right. <laughs> I'll let that go for the moment. The... Um, but notice, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And, you know, when you think about um, anti-Semitism, the, the anti-Semitism we've seen historically has been motivated by all kinds of different things, but it has not been motivated for the defense or the hatred of the name of Jesus Christ. You ever consider that? Ultimately, the final anti-Semitism they will face will be the tribulational anti-Semitism where they will be hated for the name of Jesus Christ. Why will the Jews be hated for the name of Jesus Christ in the tribulation? They will be proclaiming the name of the Jesus Christ in the tribulation. That's right. They will be the, the worldwide evangelists in the tribulation. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ in the tribulation. And so the hatred for them, uh, for the name of Christ, ultimately is waiting for a future fulfillment. It certainly they were not uh, testifying in the name of Jesus Christ. The Romans did not destroy uh, the Jews in 70 A.D. because they were defending the name of Jesus Christ. And they uh, certainly weren't hating them because of the name of Jesus Christ. So this is uh, tribulational here. So at, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. The Jewish nation will be hated for their defense of biblical Christianity. Old Testament, New Testament, biblical Christianity in the post-church age, age of tribulation dispensation. You understand that? So at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
Uh, many false prophets will arise, mislead many, because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures what? Tribulation. Thank you. And will be saved from what? Tribulation. Yeah, the final destruction. The final. Yeah, that's right. Don't try. The people that use this as a loss of salvation, eternal security kind of thing are idiots. All right. They try to say you've got to endure to the end to be saved in order to keep, you know, receiving eternal life. And, and it's garbage. Put that verse where it belongs. Uh, you need to endure the 70th week. And that is a finite period of time. It is seven uh, periods of 360 day years. It is a finite period of time. So. And, you know, he's coming back before that's over. So you can mark your calendars and just hold on. He's on his way. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Notice also, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, who is the you there? That generation. That's right. The ones that will be alive when all these things are unfolding. Excellent. Which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, it's interesting because um, the preterists and the liberals and other folks that uh, hate the Bible anyway, they uh, they think that this is also fulfilled. The abomination of desolation that was that was in the second century B.C. or the third century B.C. Uh, that was when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in uh, I guess that was second century when Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple and put up a slaughtered a pig on the on the uh, in the uh, holy place in Jerusalem. That was the abomination. See, so that was all over with by the time of the first century. Well, you can say that, but but Jesus disagreed with you. Jesus said it's still future. In fact, he says it's so far future that it's this generation down the road that's going to see it happen. So Jesus was not a preterist and Jesus did not believe that Epiphanes was the uh, fulfillment of that. Notice through Daniel, the prophet, he took it literally. Then you got to flee. And again, if you're on the housetop, don't even go inside down into your house to get the things that are in the house. Just jump off the roof and keep on running, you know, <laughs> and if you're in the field, don't go back to get your cloak. Just keep on running and again. Hope you're not pregnant. Hope you're not nursing. Um, or uh, in the winter, how far do you get cross country in the winter? Um, different things there for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will you know, stop thinking of all the times Jerusalem has been conquered. I mean, it was conquered in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Destroyed it and carried him away captive. It was conquered prior to that when David conquered it and took it for his, himself. Conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Conquered again. Um, the Persians held dominion on it. The Greeks held dominion on it. The Romans conquered it. Pompey conquered it. Uh, it'd be conquered by Titus. It gets conquered again in the Bar Kokhba revolt. It gets conquered again in the early centuries. It's going to get conquered by Sassanids. It'll be conquered by uh, Muslims, Arabs. It's going to be conquered by Byzantines. It's going to be conquered again and again and again and again and again. There's really nothing unique about 70 A.D. Not like this passage describes as unique. 
a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It is unique. Nothing before, nothing since. The tribulation is unparalleled in its scope. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those lives, those days will be cut short. This, I think, is a key. If you've never uh, considered those days will be cut short, consider the fact that even though we can track Daniel's 70th week as a period of seven 360-day years, and we know that the first three and a half, there's a midpoint, and the second three and a half, you can count those days, right? 1,000, whatever it is, seven... Whatever that math works out to be. 360 times 7. Phones are ringing. Yeah, my phone was just ringing. Your phone was just ringing. They should know better than a call during Bible class. All right. The, um, so we have a calendar. We know. So does that mean that, that, that we know the exact day that Christ is coming back? Not exactly. Because he's actually going to step in in grace and mercy and cut it short. He's going to step in with some grace and mercy and come back, which is why even Second Advent is called, uh, in, in some respects, where he's coming as a thief and you, don't know, you do not know the hour. Because it's cut short. How short? Don't know. Just hang on. Endure to the end. <laughs> All right. You know what? The, the very worst is going to be that seventh completed week, but it probably won't be that long. We know it won't be that long because they're cut short. And also, no life would have been saved. God's not going to allow human life to, to be extinct. God's not going to allow humanity to come to an end in spite of all these uh, chicken littles that keep scaring, you know, the sky has fallen and then we're going to, you know, we have to go to the nuclear disarmament or the environment and all this global warming. And oh, my goodness, humanity should have been dead decades ago if you listen to these idiots. Now, um, false cries will rise and show many signs and wonders and so forth. I've told you in advance. Um, notice verse 29, immediately after. The tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I mean, can you imagine? People got freaked out when this meteor, did you hear the radio? Uh, they were playing some of the 911 calls and people calling in the fire department and calling. I mean, people were weird about one stupid meteor. Can you imagine looking up in the sky and every visible star in the sky Gone. Would that scare you? Yeah. <laughs> Would you call 911? Why bother? What are they going to do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine every visible star in the sky gone. How dark is that not going to get? Okay. And you talk about the power is shaken. And uh, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. I believe one bright star will appear and it will grow and grow and grow. If you thought the, the, the manger star, the, the Bethlehem star was something, this one is going to be something. And the, the Magi saw the, the Bethlehem star, but this one's going to have center stage with no other stars visible. And it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And the kings of the earth are going to be terrified. They're going to crawl into holes in the ground and it's going to be something else. Anyway, this is all future. This is all second advent. This did not happen in the first century. This did not happen in the 60s, culminating with the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This did not happen unless you, 
You so allegorize the text to make it all symbolic and spiritual and, and mystical, and, and uh, you've got to truly damage the text to try to convince yourself that this happened in, uh, in the first century because it did not. So, um, learn the parable of the fig tree in verse 32. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right near, right at the door. This generation will not pass away until these things take place. What generation? The ones who do the seeing. That's right. I say to you, when you see all these things, when you see all these things, it's going to be that generation. It's going to be that, the tribulation generation. All right, so that's the application of Matthew 24. Don't try to make it a rapture passage. Don't try to make it a first century passage. It is a tribulational passage pointing ahead to Second Advent. Point eight, then, the last thing on this, and there's actually some subpoints, but we've got nine minutes left. I think we can, we can do it. Point eight, the consequence of this event is open hostility. Open hostility in addition to the continued hidden plots. Verses 53 and 54, the last two verses. The consequence of this event. He gives the Pharisees three woes. He gives the scribes three woes in the harshest possible way. And they react. They're offended. They're offended. And so now they react. And they're going to add open hostility to what's already been simmering, the hidden plots that have already been underway for quite some time. You know, when your nation goes from um, under-the-radar persecution to open, blatant discrimination and persecution, we've crossed a line. We've crossed a line, and we're very close to that in our own culture. So it says, when he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began, emphasis on began, to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, we've been in this Life of Christ series now for however many hundreds of lessons, and we've seen hostility. We've seen opposition. We've seen questions. We've seen plots already. So what is the impact here? What is beginning here? Uh, the openness of it. The, uh, as it's rendered in English, very hostile. The openness of it is what uh, gets highlighted. The verb is arco. A-R-C-H-O, to begin, to initiate an action, process, or state of being. The uh, primary verb of, of this verse is begin. It's followed up with a couple of uh, infinitives. Begin what? Well, begin to be very hostile, hostile and begin to question. But to be hostile and to question are uh, infinitives that complete the primary verb of arco, to begin. It was this event that triggered the initiation of open hostility. Open hostility to where they're not listening to Bible classes and then asking some uh, trap questions at the end. They're actually stopping Bible classes and issuing questions on the spot. Everything he says. Well, what do you mean by that? And how do you know that? In confrontational questions. 
becomes their uh, becomes their tactic. So under point A, you've got the vocabulary for the beginning, which is ARCO, number 756. Under point B, you've got the intensive adverb DENOS. Number 1171 is DENOS, D-E-I-N-O-S, DENOS, 1171, combined with ENECHO, E-N-E-C-H-O, 1758. And the adverb that... Um, intensifies the grudge, translated very hostile. Um, we've got a lot of ways to say very. A lot of adverbs that can intensify things. But this is one, it's not extreme in terms of distance. It's not extreme in terms of, of uh, degree. It's not in extreme in terms of power. It's not extreme in terms of duration. You can communicate all of that like an extremely long time in terms of duration, or extremely strong in terms of power, or extreme in terms of how widespread it is, how many people are caught up into it. Danos is an adverb that does describe an extreme, but it's an extreme on a scale that relates to values. Extreme on a scale that relates to values. And so I like the rendering of terribly. Terribly hostile. On an extreme as it applies to values. Terribly. Immorally. Evilly. It's, it's an extreme of values. Terribly hostile. Uh, and hostile is not bad. Hostile is good because it's, a, it's an active voice. And echo means to hold a grudge against somebody. To bear ill will. To wish them harm. I mean it's one thing to not like somebody. Right? You know, I mean, I don't like. There's plenty of people in this world I don't like. That's just a personality deal. Who cares? There's tons of people that don't like me. Who cares? All right? It's not about a personality deal. But there's a difference between not liking somebody and actively wanting to see them come to harm. You see how different that is? I mean, you know, think of all kinds of people I don't like. There's actors I don't like. There's athletes I don't like. There's, uh, you know, politicians I don't like. There's all kinds of people I don't like. And I'm, I don't mind telling you who they are. You know, I think Tom Hanks. I don't like Tom Hanks. If you like Tom Hanks, fine. You know, you'll answer for that at the judgment seat of Christ. My sister doesn't like Bill Murray. I can't figure that out. I, lo- I like Bill Murray. But even though I don't like Tom Hanks or Tom Cruise or whatever, I don't want to see him come to harm. I don't wake up every day wishing that bad things are going to happen to him. I just don't like him. Okay? This is an active hostility that daily wants, consistently, continuously, hopes and prays and wants and works for. They want to see this person come to harm, come to ruin, be destroyed. Which is interesting. Um, Mark 6.19 is a passage where that's used. It's a separate context than this one, so it might help to give you that flavor. But um, Herod had uh, John arrested and bound in prison on the account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. You know, he uh, 
seduces his brother's wife and convinces her to divorce um, his brother and marry him. Okay. And these Romans were a regular soap opera back in their day. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You're an adulterer with, with your own brother's wife. So Herodias had a grudge against him. Herodias held it against him. Herodias had this an echo verb, uh, bore him ill will, wanted to see him come to harm. And he recognized, uh, wanted to put him to death. And yet she could not do so until this event, until she manipulates the circumstances there where she can have uh, his hand on a platter. So that attitude of Herodias wanting Herod wanting John's head on a platter is now the Pharisees' attitude about Jesus Christ. And it's this moment that triggers. They, they already didn't like him. They already wanted to get him off the scene and quit teaching and all that. Now they are filled with this absolute hatred, wanting to bring him harm. Thirdly, point C. They began to... Uh, seek his ill will, they began to be hostile, but they also began to question him closely. That is, interrogate him, quiz him. And this, if I had time, we could spend uh, ages on this. this. I spent three and a half hours on this word yesterday when I remembered that there was some other things. I wanted to go back. I saw that I had some notes by Plato here, and I said, you know what, I never did follow up on some of those Plato references. So I spent hours yesterday reading Plato and reading some of these other authors. Because it's not Pollyannis. I learned yesterday, three and a half hours later, that it's not Pollyannis. It's Pollux that uh, that used it in that in that way. That's what took me the longest time, proving that my dictionary was wrong. So uh, I don't think they'll pay me a royalty or anything. But if I let the publishers know that their dictionary is wrong, maybe their next edition will not repeat the error. Uh, but apostomatizo, to question closely, interrogate, quiz, the only place in the New Testament it's used. The definition itself is not certain because there's some guesswork involved in it. Normally, it was used of a teacher grilling his students. It was used of a teacher who would say, uh, who would run off a long list and expect the students to repeat it back. To say, uh, uh, you know, run off a list of, of 12 apostles and then have his students recite it back. Or recite off a list and have it repeated. It was used of teachers. Uh, when it started to be used of students grilling their teachers, there was this element of disrespect, I think, that was kind of a hallmark on it. Who are the students to grill their teachers so arrogantly, so demandingly? And yet that's what they were doing here. All right? Th- these are the disrespectful, arrogant, demanding kind of questions. Like, are you sure you know what you're talking about? And prove to me you know what you're talking about. Lay these 12 things out here. Kind of a thing. Anyway, it's a fascinating study. But we'll let that go. The last two terms here, I think, are hunting words. They're assassination terms. Shows you uh, they were plotting against him to catch him. The word plotting... In a druo, uh, they were positioning themselves in a hidden ambush spot. That's better than plotting. There's plenty of words for plotting. It's not here. Uh, in, a, in a druo, number 1748, to conceal oneself in a suitable position for a surprise attack. They were positioning themselves for a surprise attack, to lie in wait. To lie in wait. 
when it says plotting, more than just plotting, you know, plotting, you know, to me anyway, and, and consistent with vocabulary in the New Testament, plotting means you're coming up with ideas. This verse isn't a thinking verse. This verse is an action. They are positioning themselves. They are hiding. They are putting themselves in, in the, the ambush spots. They're crawling down into their foxholes. They're climbing up into their, uh, into their uh, uh, blinds, right? Or what do you call that? The deer blind, the deer stand. They're climbing up into their sniper post in order to catch him. In something he might say. And this isn't just a friendly, oh, gotcha, kind of catching. This is theruo, which is a hunting term. A ther was a beast. Theruo was to, to, to kill a beast. And they, they basically viewed that he was vermin and needed to be killed. And they're climbing into their, into their deer stands, waiting to, uh, at their first available clear shot to, to take him down from this point forward. See, I think um, from this time forward, his death is imminent in their minds. Prior to this, they thought, well, someday we're going to have to do something. Someday we'll have to do something. Someday. At this point on, it's first available shot, first clean shot, first chance you've got. He needs to die. All right. Well, that gets us through. I'm three minutes long, but that gets us through the end of this episode and prepares us now for Luke chapter 12. Our next episode is episode 13. Jesus deals with hypocrisy, covetous, worry, and alertness. It's Luke 12, 1 through 59. It's the entire chapter. 59 verses long. 59 long verses long. Page 111 to page 114 in my text. And um, several issues. Hypocrisy, covetousness, worry, and alertness. A whole string of things that he's going to deal with there in Luke chapter 12. So we'll get a first crack at that starting next week. Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for your privilege, for the privilege we enjoy to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness that your word uh, is alive and powerful. It dwells within us. Father, it is so faithful to, uh, to dwell richly and to spring forth and bear fruit and to, to serve as reminders for us day by day when we encounter... Uh, testings and difficulties and opportunities for that word to be useful father i thank you for that i thank you that the word is convicting i thank you that it's piercing i thank you that it lays all things bare and i thank you that your word does not compromise and and accept the flimsy human excuses we often make for ourselves your word is faithful and true and i thank you for that and i thank you that it's gone forth once again here today and i thank you in jesus christ's name amen